He sings here of the quintessential and original Harare boys and Harare girls who are usually migrants into the city from the rural areas. He advises them to settle down and get married instead of running the streets. Ah, Senor Jack said, nothing has changed. Alright guys, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining in. In the Stimela series, we're looking at the train as an industrial machine and as metaphor for the movement of our people. Usually rural to urban, land to coast, and also up and down the continent. All the songs that will be played here and the readings are related somehow to the train and its journey in Africa. I'm trying to do a revisiting of Cecil John Rhodes uh, and his fellow colonizers and how they tried to have a railway line running from Cape Town to Cairo in Egypt. Not for us, but for movement of our resources, which they had claimed, and our labor and their capital. We saw what was happening and took part in it, but also wrote our stories while all this was going on, which is how we have love stories, stories of destiny and fortune seeking. Uh, we spoke about going Kumarimuka as a young man, as it was in the day to seek your fortune, and you return to your home to marry and so forth. The stories of leaving and never coming back, as happens. We also have stories of seeking new identities in Zimbabwean farms, in South African mines, on the Zambian copper belt, the mines in Angola and in West Africa. There's a lot to do with the music scene in West Africa. The movement of our music, our literature, culture. Today we stay mostly in Southern Africa, but the stories are the same across the continent. All the stories are of how we looked for and created meaning in, in all these migrations. Some of these histories are deep and dark and at times depressing, but they are also a celebration. They tried to make us fodder and they did briefly, but we are here now. Percy Jomoy has done a lot of work looking into the train as a metaphor, particularly on the song Chemtengure, which refers to the wagons which colonialism rolled in on from the south. I'm Zimbabwean, so coming up on that lager, that chain of wagons, 
And these were essentially the first trains pulling into the continent north of Limpopo from the south end. The following words are from afropop.org and from Percy's notes. But from Afropop, they say Chem Tengure is a very fascinating song in that it is a folk song that reveals the history of the coming of the whites to Zimbabwe and the experiences of the black wagon drivers. Chem Tengure literally means that which carries, and this refers to the white men's wagon. When the whites came to Africa, they used mule-drawn wagons to travel from one place to another, especially the Boer trek. They used to employ black men to drive the mules. We call that Kuchkairangoro. That's from Afropop. Percy's notes are these. Chemtengure, one of the most famous songs in all of Mbira music, invokes the coachmen of the 19th century in the age before the automobile. In the days before cars, there were mule-drawn coaches that were referred to as cabs, normally drawn by 16 mules, 16 span. They were used for a variety of uses, including carrying mail across the country. When he, it was always a man, got to a town, he would hoot, drop off mail for that locale, and pick up some. In the coach, he had an assistant, a mailman. He would change his mules, getting fresh ones. I think at every stop they got fresh mules. It was a very prestigious job, perhaps one of the best paying jobs available to black people. According to the account of one coach driver, he got paid three pounds, three cans of corned beef, a sack of sugar and a sack of flour. And naturally, soon enough, myths and legends about their wealth and grandeur soon gathered around the Vachairi Vengoro, the coach drivers. In the song, it is said the wife of the coachman is so posh, she doesn't use peanut butter for cooking, opting for grease or cooking oil, in brackets, the olive oil of its day. There are a million versions of that song. I've seen 50, 60, 70. I like this one by Dumisani Maraire. It's from 1972, and you can 
you can hear there's some old instruments being played there. Some of you will know Dumisani Maraire as the Mira player. Some of you will know him as Chuoniso Maraire's father. Thomas Turino, uh, he has a brilliant book in which he touches on the phenomenon from the 50s and 60s of the itinerant guitarist, basically just a guitarist who would just be on the road, on the train, on buses, at bars, and he's just playing for money. Usually these guys were actually employed, but on weekends or off times, whatever, they'll jump on the train and they're playing. So these were usually guitarists, or they would play jipendani, or mbira, or whatever instrument. And they would ride on trains playing for coins, or notes in those days. And they would move from place to place, town to town. This is an excerpt from Turino's book called Nationalists, Cosmopolitans, and Popular Music in Zimbabwe. Small chapter titled The Itinerant Guitarists. While guitars were used in middle class quote-unquote, concert, and African jazz groups. In this chapter, we are concerned with the distinct realm of itinerant acoustic guitarists who moved between rural areas and cities, playing for tips at beer halls or for hire for farm owners and mining company bosses. Many worked as laborers on the farms or mines and would entertain the other workers at night. Signoro Jackson Chinembiri, for example, told me how in the 1950s, his farmer employers would pay him $3 to play guitar, accompanied by Hosho at all-night dances for the other workers. Like many acoustic guitarists, Chinembiri also worked his own subsistence plot in the tribal trust lands, but would travel at off times to earn cash playing guitar at, quote-unquote, tea parties, gatherings where liquor was sold. He would also play in beer halls, on trains, and on the street in towns. In rural areas such as Morewa, the guitarists also played in ad hoc nightclubs. Temporary walls were erected in an open area and an entrance fee was charged to drink and listen to the guitarist inside. These acoustic guitarists were thus mobile peasants and members of the agrarian and industrial workforce. The audiences for this music were from the same classes. Along with police band musicians, these itinerant guitarists comprised one of the first sizable groups of Zimbabwean musicians to seriously consider music as a cash-generating activity. Among conservative indigenous villages, Christians, and members of the African middle class, these itinerant guitarists often suffered from being stereotyped as drunkards, women chasers, and marginal characters, a status they still have today. Coming next is the song Bugine Chembir by Signoro Jackson Chinembiri, one of these itinerant uh, guitarists the guy mentioned in this passage I just read. The song is in Shona. He sings here of the quintessential and original Harare boys and Harare girls who were usually migrants into the city from the rural areas. He advises them to settle down and get married instead of running the streets. Ah, Senor Jack said, nothing has changed, Wang. Dandere Kirura, Dandere Kirura, 
Samsoni Chirora, Samsoni Chirora, Majure Chirova, Majure Chirova, Agnesi Chirova, Agnesi Chirova, Tamba Bugine Chembere, Bugine Chembere, Bugine Chembere, Mandarati Sere. Kenjera kabori, wakupe derasi mba mnyati zoodzicha uya. Ndiyo ika namo isingao nisuwa rombo. Ndiyo ika namo isingao nisuwa rombo. Yagarowa umwe murune kwa kurangarera shemba ya kekandono shandera imbaya. Wakananga parari, basa wakari ona Oseweza shakanaka, wakutambira mari Wakupera komwezi shikanzi, dochi enda kumba Wakananga napapawa kutindimbo dopeza nyota Shino wanikwa, panemumwe na mumu honda kutimbaya keive no utanu Unutwe iseve zera murizuwayo Saka murume uyu, akainda kwa arari kuru chakabasa Wakatunga miru kwa zaganaka Yoku vahari wana Musuwe chishanu wega wega unenga haka zita Baiti kuziru machaiko chaiko Akuenda Kulukeshe ni nzira yachu ya ifurane pechiko ni bawa Nzara yaka vayamu gurama vi Kana kishitu gurama vijinore wa kunyanya kuwaza Shikanzi a Kutindinde kumba kuno bikamuri oku zotisaza Tulete kuno nukau Regai ndirove chikari Dopa kandi puisa kurova chikari Ano da kurova chikari Shino chengetadoro no mwane munu Chapara mosa ye Dopa vanda pukuta kumeso kutimaranga Adve ni yato ona kuti Ano norova mbama boots kana fine Yone Memba ya kuto taora na keshia Uidoro Achitenga doro waka batari apa mkua mkuru Inonzi nechinge zimeni keti Hapo wachinja maindi murume Inindiri kwetu kupuera ndoti mainini Wateke Wanjazi Inonzi respect yoyo kukudza Asipata winda wadaro Pani inonzi slengi Mano dae zaichimba real jidom Unonzi kwa murume wata zogudi Simaewa kunere budi Mwaya unungu tiki samsoro bezi kuti yaa Zawira mtikwanda kunungira tichani Ini ndakanga ndaka pusafuti Ndaifunga kutihari kumudaya zira dororri ara atenga kwete Anotopuntu wanechunu kusonzi darling what do you take? I go by castle This was reported in 87 just the recording, not the composition of the song. This is one of the songs he used to sing, I don't know, in the 60s, I want to say early 60s. You know, we've got this perception that in the old days, everyone was very well behaved, there were morals and all this. No one was fucking around. And if anyone was, it was the men. You know, all the women were, you know, Proverbs 31 and everything. And it's interesting how he starts with Samson, Samuel, stay off the streets, get married, and then just as the women think they're off the hook, he goes into Agnes and I forget the other name. He's like, yeah, you too. 
stay off the streets. So these guitarists are getting influences from the Congolese at that time, also from South Africa. But I want to go with the Congolese line. So this is another excerpt from the same Torino book, which talks about the migration of rumba music from the Congo to Zimbabwe, which would have influenced some of these guitarists. A very short passage, two paragraphs. He says, Congolese guitar music, kwasa kwasa, or simply rumba, as it is often called, has been a prominent music tradition in Zimbabwe since the late 1950s. The style emerged from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly Zaire, and is now known internationally as Sukus. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Although this term is not commonly used in Zimbabwe. During my visits to Zimbabwe in the 1990s, Congolese guitar music resonated throughout the townships and black middle-class neighborhoods constantly and was one of the most popular styles in the country. Internationally acclaimed artists like Kanda Bongo Man, as well as lesser-known groups performed regularly in Harare, and a weekly television program was dedicated to this music. Congolese guitar bands began coming to Harare in the late 1950s because of better economic conditions there. Their effect on the local music scene was so pronounced that Brian Chinamora has claimed that the Congolese guitar bands, quote-unquote, highly successful performances heralded the decline of Zimbabwe's popular music for the following 15 years. He goes on to suggest that to survive, Zimbabwean artists had no option but to abandon their own music and switch to playing rumba. These are overstatements because most bands, even those from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, played a variety of music, including rumba, cha-cha-cha, the twist, rock and roll, soul, and local Zimbabwean genres by the second half of the 1960s. Shinamora's statements, however, do underline the important and lasting influence of the Congolese rumba in Zimbabwe. According to Jackson Piri, a member of an early rumba group in Harare, the Congolese musicians were initially influential in Zimbabwe because they arrived with a highly developed approach to electric guitar performances as compared to the youthful local electric guitarists of the mid-1960s.
Shauri Yako by Orchestra Super Mazembe. There are a lot of Congolese bands, like Franco in them, TPOK, which are more quintessentially Congolese. But I like this one because it has those Congolese Sukus origins, but they did not produce the song in the Congo. It's a couple of Congolese guys from a band there split off, went across the continent to the other side to Kenya. And by the time they produced the song, they had infused all the East African musical influences and then came up with the song, which gives that slight distinction from the quintessentially Congolese songs. <laughs> ML Hi, Farai. As always, love, love being here. I just wanted to ask a broader question, actually. I was thinking of how these modes of transport put forth by colonizers for the transfer of resources, really, and how that related to financial security for Africans in proximity to this transport. And I was thinking of my own grandfather, he was a train conductor, I was just realizing now. And I'd never really put much thought into it because you're told your grandfather's a train conductor as a child and you just think, oh, choo-choo trains and whatnot. And I had just up until now thought, oh, of course, he must have been ferrying actual human beings because no, you're probably right. This was about goods, this bizarre realization to come to. Just proximity to the train a few decades ago ended up with my mother not growing up poor, but my father, whose family obviously didn't have any connection to the train, growing up poor in the Gambia, which is fascinating to me. Is that true for every other descendant of like a train conductor? Is that translated into generational wealth, even as meager as it is within the African context, do you think? I can see a couple of economists in the listeners. If anyone wants to chip in on this, please jump in. This is way above my O-level certificate. Kwanga kune mungwe murume, zita ragecha minuka, haigara pache itungwiza, munyika yedu ye Zimbabwe, ere, ere baba, imima pambe pumi, ere, ere baba. But your grandfather being the train conductor is going back to the Chemtengure song, which speaks about this capitalist mode of moving goods, which is the wagon. And if you're a black male in proximity of that, you had the chance to strike for a job as either the mailman or the driver, which was one of the most lucrative positions. So there's that. And then from what you're saying, that the train is for extraction. Rhodes did not build the Cape to Cairo line, but when he was in South Africa prospecting for diamonds in Kimberley, he realized he could make more money and sooner if he had a railway line between the ports. 
in Cape Town and where his mines were in Kimberley. And he ran for office, became prime minister, so he could enact legislation to allow him to build that line that runs from Cape Town into the Northern Cape just to ferry his diamonds and make more money. And if you were anywhere along that line, you were in the money, working on the tracks, building the tracks, running the trains and moving between the mines. So it's a chain of wealth. In Zim, as defunct as it is now, the NRZ was a huge employer in Bulawayo and in Gwere, one of the other towns. There were a huge interchange, but all that is defunct. But those were huge employers and huge sources of income and industry. Saru? I just wanted to say that we do actually have an, a feminist economist on the panel, which makes us very special. I think we have Nancy here. And she can speak to some of the things. Maybe before I finish, sorry, I'm competing with the dog. Uh-huh. There's a song that was uh, sung by uh, Comrade Chinks, Maruza Yemi, you have lost, where he says that they built uh, roads, they built bridges, they built railways, and the whole purpose of it was to take our wealth out of the country. Hundred percent. Thank you for that. No pressure, uh, Nancy. But feel free if you feel pressured. Hi, Farai. Okay, so I'm not an economist. Economist. I work in economic policy and economic justice. One of the previous speakers was talking about his grandfather who was a driver in the railways. I think part of it is about colonial labor structures and employment structures. And in as much as labor was devalued in many ways, labor that could be used for colonial purposes was always going to be quite well valued. So if you could get onto that ladder of being part of that class that would be useful for extraction of an operation of the colonial machinery of extraction, you were doing quite well. And even at then, I think there's also a sense of a post-Cold War era. Unions were quite a big thing. Demands for wages were also quite a big thing. So if you were able to get onto a certain level where you could be part of the working class as opposed to agrarian, peasantry, labor that's not useful to the colonial project. Between those two sets of ideas, which is why we had very strong unions, because unions were also strong in Europe at the time, you would end up being able to get onto, you have a job, it is paid, wages are set, you have a pension, you have healthcare, the kind of stability that we thought was a standardized workers' wage, you were able to move from agrarian peasantry into 
that economy where you can get a job. It was a small economy. It required people who had maybe a certain level of education and then you got the training and then you get the skill. As an aside, sometimes you read stories about slavery and we always imagine slaves in the U.S., as always having been low-skilled workers, while a lot of them were quite well-skilled workers. They were carpenters. They were quite highly skilled workers. So the colonial economy of labor in terms of its use of non-white labor was often that you did need to skill people to a certain extent. So I think the question of the labor market and the labor economy under a colonial regime, which created probably what would have then been a middle class if you weren't a chief or something. That's where the education bit came in and you started to be either lower, upper levels of professionalized classes, which then builds another level of social mobility for that particular class. So I think in terms of railways, Absolutely. I think what you're saying, Farai, to try and just wind up, the railways were so fundamental to the extraction of resources that drawing in skilled workers, first the mines, then the railways to transport, that's the value chain, as we call it right now, and whatever skills you need for those, if you don't need to attract them from Europe, then you educate them and train them within the economy. I think the reference was to the Gambia, but I think one Usman Semben, God's Bits of Wood, which was a book and then a film about railway strikes in West Africa. So all of the colonial map and the movement economy is marked by railway lines across the continent. And often the stories are the same and they replicate themselves. We're deep inside the belly of the beast, and the war is very strongly on the side of the owners of the wagons. Who was next? Bushley. So when you talk about the railways, you know, you take me back to the days of growing up in Bulawayo. In RIZ, it was a huge employer. My uncle was a security guard there. But, you know, because it was the railway, I compare his lifestyle to maybe myself now, and... His lifestyle was much better because he was working for the railway. I remember when we were young, there was a train from Blyre to Plumtree. And as soon as you got to Plumtree, you know, there were like women selling stuff and whatever. And I think the train reminds me of a time when our economy was more functional, where you could plan your life around the in hours at train. People would move from Blyre to Harare for an interview, for example. So you'd get to Harare in the morning, go for an interview, and you knew, but you go back uh, in the evening. And I don't know, I think it just took me back to that time when NRZ was like a very good employer with benefits and stuff. There's a place called Westgate in Blawai. After Chavalala, where like houses belonging to railway employees. I think because of the benefits and stuff, people were then also able to buy their houses elsewhere. So I think the train Budala, it now brings back memories of, I think, a time when we saw things happening in the economy and we thought it was going to stay the same. But of course, we all know what happened. A hundred percent. And I don't think it's coincidental that you mentioned Bulawayo because it has a huge marshalling hub of that network. 
And the travel you talk about, I remember that from when I was in school. We used to catch the train when we were going to play rugby or cricket against schools in Bulawayo. I would catch the overnight train, would leave on a Friday night at 8, and it would get to Bulawayo, I think at 6 in the morning, and then would catch buses. Falcon used to send a truck. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the entire network was not electric. It was electric from Harare to Kweru. And then there was a long stop in Gweru where they changed the locomotive heads. They would remove the electric one and put on the either diesel or steam, it was diesel. And then that would take us all the way to Bulawayo. And you see these marshalling yards, the affluence that you're talking about is real. Because if you look at some of these, like Lokinva, for instance, just outside Harare, there's a huge industry built around Lokinva. I'm not sure what aspect of rail they do there. But it's actually a location centered around the railway. And there's staff houses, worker houses, whatever that is. There's even like one of these managerial little sports club things going on. And one of the strongest pensions in Zem was the National Railways of Zimbabwe pensions. But even going back to the Rhodesian days, a lot of Rhodesians were earning pensions in Zimbabwe from the railways. One of the biggest pension funds in Zem, which are continuously looted by these state institutions and Anasa in them, is the National Railways pension fund because it owns a lot of shit. There were a lot of real estate and funds. Yeah. Well, please jump in, madam. Hello, everyone. I hope you can hear me. A hundred percent. Perfect. So I am also a 90s person. So I have never known the National Railways as something that's successful. I think my earliest memories of it are the commuter trains in 2008 and after during the acute diesel shortages. And in Vlawayo, people would walk all the way from Langeta to Mkanwini just to catch the early, I think it was 4 or 5 a.m. train to the city. And that's how some of my peers were getting to school. Some adults were getting to work as well. I also know the train as a cheaper option to go to Botswana from Bulawayo as well to buy groceries during that 2008 period. So it's so interesting to hear people speak about, oh, NRZ was this successful entity when I have always associated it with acute shortages and poverty as well. You made points. You made points. Maggie? Hi, Farah. So yeah, one of my favorite modes of transport, trains. I'm one of the the lucky ones, hey. I grew up at a time when trains were greedy. Was it middle class or something like that, you know? So some of my best memories growing up in Bulawayo were associated with the train, you know, especially the trips to Victoria Falls. And the loveliest scene is as you arrive in the area of Wange in the morning and you wake up and you see elephants and the sun is coming up. Now those people who built those rail tracks knew what they were doing when they made the railway line go through the national park. You do see elephants and other game as you wake up and the sun is coming up and it's such a beautiful scene. I'm also reminded, I think I'm not the only Zimbabwean who's got relatives who are of Malawian origin or Zambian. And it, it takes me back to what you said, I think, when you were opening this space to say, you know, migration movement of people. And I'm reminded of one of these phrases that I always used to hear. The adults would always say this when I was a kid. And it's in a way offensive, 
when people figure out you are a Piri or Kandawire from Malawi, they're like, oh, you're one of those people, you know, who followed the railway line all the way to Harare. And I literally know people who do not know any of their relatives back in Malawi. And it's a terrible thing for them. All they know is, right, that ancestor of mine walked all the way from Blantyre, followed the railway line all the way to Harare because Harare was the hub and that's where the jobs were. And this is who I am now, but I really don't know where I come from in Malawi. My identity is something that's quite elusive for me because of that. And this idea that people belong somewhere you're not really Zimbabwean you are Malawian you are not really Zimbabwean you are Zambian or you're not really South African you are a Piri from Malawi or you are a Spanda from Zimbabwe it's one of those things that gets me thinking about how colonialism then moved us around and gave us this idea that people belong in a place where you can say this location this is where you come from and that's where you belong that's where you should be when really it's not like that it's quite interesting the role that the train played in that as a mode of transport. And then the legacy of where do we come from as a people or as a tribe. I'm Shona, but are Shona's from here in Mashona land or are they from somewhere else? I'm Develia. Where am I from? Am I from Guazulu Natal? And how did I get here? Stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, that's me rambling on about trains. Thanks, Farah. <laughs> awesome. You said a lot of things poignant nancy let me uh one tiny point the infrastructure right now is still following the old patterns of where we build roads where we build rail is around how do we become exporters of raw materials nothing has changed i was in europe i was on a train where we did 700 kilometers in two and a half hours which is amazing and it was passenger rail so railway is great but infrastructure that is for the economy rather than for our social needs i want infrastructure that makes me able to visit my aunt easily so infrastructure for needs other than just extraction we need to think about that so we have stimela rail we have movement we have mobility we have migration and then we also have extraction and trade all of those things need to come together but right now the infrastructure projects even the au that is doing this big africa needs infrastructure if you look at where they are they will usually be about getting something from inside this huge continent of ours to a port rather than I want to be able to transport myself from where I am now to somewhere else to visit my relative. So we want to be mobile. Trains are great, but let's make the train systems meet all those needs and not just the needs of extraction. Roads, trains, everything, usually look for a mine somewhere and look for a port on the other end. And that's probably where the new infrastructure developments are going. So we are not really moving towards anything that's about our mobility to be able to connect, move, go where we want to go conveniently. Mutle, 
in the train itself, there was always the issue of class. But of course, because I was young, I didn't know that. I only got to know it much later. Because now to be like, okay, there's the first class, second class, and then the Mbombela. And I remember when we were now coming to Harare from Blawai using the train, it was always, you don't go onto the Mbombela by yourself if you're a woman. It was always deemed to be not safe and, and all that. You were told the men there were rowdy and everything. So I think that also had something to do with the issue of class. There's a lot, I think, that we can sort of glean from the thing of the train. Because, yeah, you're all going to get there at the same time. But there are differences. I think more like that scene in the Titanic, where you see Rose moving from where the upper class and going downstairs to the deck or whatever. So, yeah, I, I just thought I'd share that as well. I like the direction this has gone. I... 100% remember that we had um, Bombera, which was, they called it, uh, what did they call it? Economy class. Economy class was Bombera, where there are no guaranteed seats, it's just benches. You would pack as many people as could fit in there. And then there was the second class, and then the first class was the sleeper class with the six, either three or six foldable or unfoldable bed type things. And then the little dining car and everything. It was all classed 100%. I want to read from a 2018 article. It is another Percy article. What's the actual title? Derailed on route to Vic Falls. It talks about W.G. Seawald. To tie together the colonial origins and influence and drive of the railways and the political direction of the people put in the railways and also the political direction and priorities and competence, quote-unquote, of the people who took over those railways after the colonizers. The railway in the post-colony. It reads, in Europe, the railway lives on, but in the post-colony, in states such as Zimbabwe and South Africa, the railway system is effectively moribund, except when as in the case of the Khao train, it is a kind of vanity project. In Zimbabwe, the railway system is in a particularly sorry state, destined for a bit part in a museum if nothing is done soon. The trains cannot run on time and the coaches seem to be the ones Robert Mugabe inherited from Ian Smith, now in a frightfully dilapidated state. They run on diesel even in parts where they used to run on electricity. If you want to see what Mugabe really did to Zimbabwe, the way the country regressed, the railways are the obvious place to begin looking. I'm going to strike two birds with one stone by playing the next song which touches on the class aspect of economy people think pressure started with combis pressure started with the train the economy train that was the origins of pressure for transport because Makombi commuter taxis as we know them they only started moving around in just between 98 and 2000 that's when the first combis were getting into Harare before that it was ETs lifts and pressure Mbombera
ETs are emergency taxis for AMA 2000 there. There were station wagon, estate Peugeot 404s and 544s, where there would be a driver, two people sitting in the front passenger seat, four people in the second line of that back seat, and then it's got that boot, and you had four people sitting facing each other, legs straight, Magatandawar, Muri four at the back. That was an ET, emergency taxi, and that was how we used to travel before combis came in in like 1998, 1999, 2000. Fun fact. So these concepts, <laughs> you have to explain to someone. So when we talk about Kumbombera Kwaizara, that name captures Mbombera. When we say Kuti for instance, if I was to use the train from Chegutu to Kadum, right? It's 30 k's. This thing travels at, uh, there was a stop at Martin Square, one or two stops. Average is 40 k's an hour. It should take about an hour to go from Chegutu to Kadum. If you went, which I did, but I would deny, you know, under examination. If I got into that train in economy class, and this thing had 30 cabins. I could get on that train, spot where the conductor is, but this train would be so packed. The train would get to Kadoma before that conductor got to me. I could keep evading him, just moving cabin by cabin until we got to Kadoma. And if shit got tight, like I said, this thing at max would go 40 k's an hour. If I ran out of cabins, me and my boys could jump off and walk the last two k's or something. <laughs>